Well, hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America and right there in your pocket. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osowski, broadcasting to you from the New York City studio. Feeling good? And uh, plenty of construction. And um, joined, as always, by David Clement, who's over there in Toronto in his own studio. David, 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 what is new in your world? Ooh, lots going on. Uh, lots going on. Where to start? I mean, have you been following, we'll get right into it. Have you been following this whole China campaign thing in Canada? Uh, you mean the, the takeover of the country, uh, silently, and then also Justin Trudeau being, um, basically talked down like a little schoolboy by Xi Jinping. Is that what you mean? Well, yeah, the second part we'll get to. The first part is... CSIS, which is our intelligence agency in Canada, basically announced that there were 11 candidates in the last federal election who were essentially compromised and and received money illegally from uh, Chinese Communist Party or PLA, which is their army, um, sources. And this is not the scandal yet that it should be. Um, and we still don't know whom the candidates are, and I have no idea why, because nobody else would. I mean, think about think about the people. Um, like, what would happen in the U.S. if like eleven Democrats were compromised by China, or eleven Republicans were re- illegally receiving money from Russia? Um, well, we already, Europe, well, we already had same. a whole fake investigation about this at the presidency, so I well, don't want yes, to talk but, about it but, anymore. <laughs> but, but imagine if if the intelligence agencies were coming out and saying, yes, we, ha- we have evidence to suggest that they were receiving money, not the Paul Manafort weirdness or like any of that stuff. Like the actual, like, we know that they got money illegally from these sources um so yeah we've had we've had an example we've had an example in australia uh very similar as well where there are fielded candidates that were essentially ccp stooges and uh, Mm -hmm. there's a great 60 minutes australia piece about this uh geez i watched it It was like two hours long but they do sort of a great deep dive into where the money was coming from and who was doing it and this connection and yeah, this stuff is is all a bit strange and weird and all over the place, and I don't know how it is not more of an outrage in free countries. I think there's well, a, the thing- there's a lot of stuff that's happening at the media level that I'd love to talk about when it comes to the Twitter thing, that the incentives that exist today, and we're talking here on free media here, on the on the radio and podcast, <laughs> but there's something with we're seeing it. I I know it because of the SBF and FTX and crypto thing that we could talk about later. But I'm seeing what's happening with the media. They're starting to put it under the covers, excuse it away, no accountability. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, the thing that really grinds my gear. So one of the one of the uncomfortable parts of Canadian political commentary is that it's dominated by commentary about what's going on in the U.S. Absolutely. A lot of Canadian, a lot of Canadian writers spend a lot of time talking about what goes on in the U.S. That was very true under Bush. 
uh, maybe less true under Obama, very true under Trump. You have the columnists and, and journalists who extensively covered um, Flynn and Manafort and Trump and Russia and all of that stuff, like in great detail, um, which was deserving. I deserved scrutiny. Um, I think a lot of people got it wrong at the end of the day, um, but that's a, a different story. And, and the same group who raised so many red flags in regards to Trump and Russia seem very quiet right now in regards to our democracy and China. And that doesn't make any sense to me um, because we have an intelligence agency whom we don't have any reason to doubt. Um, CSIS is a lot less politicized than the FBI was from 2016 onward. Um, and they're saying that this happened and we just don't have any information. And I mean, it, it should be the front page of every newspaper and it should be like the only question asked consistently until we figure out what's going on. But that's not the case. And that really bothers me. Well, somebody's got their bread buttered. <laughs> And uh, yeah. I think it also is, it's it's very easy from Canadian shores to feign outrage about stuff in the U.S. where essentially you have no control. Uh, and you have no control twice because A, you're not in the government. B, you're not American. And we, we mm -hmm. sort of see this. And, and I think when it's in our own backyard or when it's in our own country, it's as if it's, I, I don't know. It's like, well, it can't be that bad. Can't assume the worst. Not sure. I don't know. There's a, there's a, a lot of stuff that's very lackadaisical. And David, we know we've, I know we've just discussed this before, but it is true that there are just various projections of what Canada is across the country. So, is mm -hmm. there a national Canadian media, or is they there a Toronto, Ottawa, a little bit of Vancouver like national media, and then there's just like a lot of provincial stuff that occupies most people's time. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it, and maybe that's why there's not a unified outrage about this at all levels. Could, yeah, but let, yeah, but let me let me give you a, a good uh, difference in coverage, right? So Ford enacts the notwithstanding clause to force education workers back to work, and everybody freaks out that this is a threat to democracy, right? This is an unprecedented, uh, precedented threat to democracy. I don't like the people saying they don't like the road that Canada or Ontario is going down um, in, in regards to democratic norms and the importance of protecting our democracy. And yet we have a foreign power, um, a totalitarian one, actively committing genocide, um, trying to influence our democracy, and everyone is mum, muff about it. They're not saying anything. It's just a huge level of cognitive dissonance, and and it's wild. I mean, well, maybe it's like in the beginning of COVID, where you can't be seen as racist if <laughs> you're talking against yeah, the, the Chinese government or their actions or what might have happened or the competence of a, some political authorities. I don't know. What a ridiculous thing to say, right? That implies that the Chinese Canadians are not smart enough to differentiate between criticism of the Chinese Communist Party and criticism of Chinese people. 
It's it's like oh has that has that narrative played out yet? Have you heard that before a little bit? Well, yeah. I mean, there the one of the news stories was that the um, that the conservatives in the last election were too hard on China and they lost votes with Chinese Canadians because of it. Oh, that's ridiculous. The the flip side of that story is that in some of these key writings, it was shown that. The, com- the Chinese Communist Party was actively spreading misinformation about these candidates um, to to dissuade, to try and blur the lines um, between ch- criticism of communist, the Communist Party and criticism of Chinese Canadians. Um, but it's just so silly. And it's like, well, why for a country and, and a leader in Trudeau who so regularly talks about Canadian values and democracy and all of that all of those good things to just be completely silent here and not like uh, i mean especially given that like mps like mark garretson and a couple others were so loud about the potential of foreign funding for the freedom convoy and how that was so nefarious and and evil and yet the same folks are again sitting on their hands um, and to be honest, the thing that makes it worse is the longer they wait to say who it is, the more it feels like they're protecting somebody. Um, well, that is always true, a- and it's usually some kind of civil servant or, or someone who has paid their time in the party. So, yeah, I, I mean, where what are if these they? What if they just come now? out and they say it's the entire NDP? <laughs> well, sure, I mean, makes sense. But yeah, I mean, if it. But if it was if it was the entire NDP, like if they if they came out and they're like, yeah, Nikki Ashton was getting CCP money, which wouldn't be a shock because she's so incredibly soft on China. Um, I mean, if if that was the case, the liberals would should hammer home, right? You you carve off progressive votes from the NDP in the next election because they've been infiltrated by a foreign power, and that's. That's how you siphon votes away and you kind of rebuild your majority. Sounds like we just need an election <laughs> anyway. Let's just do one in yeah. February. There's too much stuff that yeah. has changed. <laughs> yeah. Different world yeah. order. I mean, Canadian leader getting shook yeah. down by Xi in Indonesia. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is the, for anyone who didn't see that, basically, there was a conversation at the G20 in Bali. Uh, great location for, <laughs> for a summit. Oh, yeah, I got to um, go surfing in between talks, these guys. Yeah. Hang loose in Uluwatu, um, where Xi Jinping just like basically dressed down Trudeau and was like, "You leaked our conversation to the press. That's not how you like. That's totally inappropriate." But I think back to the Harper era, era, and when Harper met with Putin, not by choice either. It was like he was forced to meet with Putin because he was at one of these summits. And the only thing he said, and it was on camera, when he was like, hi, hi Vladimir, uh, I don't have anything to say to you. I will shake your hand to tell you to get out of Ukraine. And that was it. And it was like, whatever you thought of Harper, imagine a scenario where Trudeau goes to Xi Jinping, and rather than this loose language of, well, we don't know if they're committing genocide, we'll let the genocide scholars determine if it's genocide, just say, stop putting the Uyghurs in internment camps. And that's it. Walk away. 
that's standing up for Canadian values. Obviously weak. Obviously not what's being done. And there's all kinds of uh, there's a lot of weak stuff that's happening, David. Uh, we're in weak times, you know. You know this uh, modern times create weak men. You know this is we're we're kind of in this era, and um, you know we'll close out our first segment here by giving you the latest. And this is exactly why we are weak. In a last minute reversal, this is a headline article: Qatar bans beer and alcohol sales at World Cup stadiums. So just days before this global soccer tournament, all, all these people that have spent tens of thousands of dollars are flying in. They used all these slaves. A bunch of people died building this stadium. All we're going to have is non-alcoholic beer. Not a problem. It's good. You can have it. But the ability to just have a beer at the game is why sports <sighs> is important. And this is what Qatar is denying these World Cup fans. Sorry, guys. It's brutal. It's brutal. I mean, it com- it completely destroys the experience. Uh, and we've heard we've heard uh, have... we've heard a little bit from our our colleague Fred, who's in uh, nearby Dubai, and uh, just mm-hmm. the, the total colossal mess that is being done here. Uh, a lot of the reporting, where there's just like some Finnish journo doing some TV report, and these Qatari henchmen come up and stop it. <laughs> this is just look. These are not liberal democracies. They're fine, rich, uh, economically free areas, but you know, it's not. Uh, it's not like we're having the Olympics in in China or Russia, are we? Oh wait. <sighs> well, I, I mean, they could have solved this by just once they found out that it was rigged. And they basically bought the World Cup. They could have just canceled it and given it to a market with the infrastructure already built, right? Germany, England, Canada, and the U.S. You have the stadiums. There's no infrastructure to be built. Uh, I mean, the the greater New York area has enough stadiums to house the World Cup. Um, You don't need to go to Qatar. Let them waste our money and... um, all of that on on building this stuff but it's just it it makes no sense it's such a corrupt organization um it's just disgusting i mean uh where's next north korea yeah i I hear pyongyang just has like you know just just perfect uh opportunities there to get that and uh we'll, we'll hear about that next in the north korean world cup and we're back here on consumer choice radio And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Um, Yael, another hot topic in uh, in the news above the fold is the collapse of FTX. Um, what has happened there? What has happened? What has not happened, David? That's the better question. I think with this entire scenario, the penultimate sort of outcome is exactly what our esteemed um, enemy of the show, Paul Krugman, uh, put out. <laughs> I think it was this morning uh, in the in the NYT, and uh, his his title here on his opinion article is: "Is this the end game for crypto? What's the point of reinventing banks only worse?" And he mentions all kinds of things in here. Mentions democracy. Democracy is on the ballot, and the end conclusion is 
we should just regulate all this stuff away. Banks are doing a great job anyway. So that's the NYT consensus. And I might mind you, the mention of FTX is, oh, just a couple of smart kids that made some mistakes with money. Absolutely no. ridiculous. <laughs> so two things on Krugman. One, does the so his argument is, is this the end of crypto because a crypto exchange went bust? That would be like saying, is 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 the 08 crash mean that the, this is the end of the dollar? It's just the end of banks. Just the end of mortgage. The, the mortgage contract is done. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, okay. So because of malfeasance, the currency is, is completely destroyed or the mortgage contract is just like, no, that's ridiculous. And two, it's not just a couple of dumb kids. I mean, the, en- the guy who did the restructuring of Enron. Yeah said that this is the worst thing he's ever seen in his professional career. And you have point three that you forgot that Krugman didn't actually write this because he doesn't actually write his columns. Um, I have no proof, but... He doesn't? That has been oh. an, a long-time <laughs> assertion in these circles. <laughs> guy, guy wins a Nobel Prize like being a free market guy, essentially, and talking about prices and all this kind of stuff in the economy. And everything he's ever written down in this paper has been the complete opposite Keynesianism uh, to the nth degree. All right, so let's do the FTX thing. So you have this fellow, Sam Bankman-Fried. So he starts out, graduates from MIT, does a little bit of trading. Apparently, he was just a junior-level analyst at one of these firms in Wall Street, you know, some derivatives uh, trading, these kind of things. Bit of a computer guy. And he puts together this little hedge fund called Alameda Research. Alameda Research, they do hedge fundy stuff, but then they start getting much more into cryptocurrencies and doing arbitrages, apparently, between the different Bitcoin price in South Korea, in the U.S., in Canada, the Bahamas, and Europe. And it is apparently through these arbitrages that they somehow amassed about a billion dollars. And it was only about two and a half, three years ago that they then decided to launch their own exchange for cryptocurrencies, known as FTX. There's FTX International, uh, which is headquartered in the Bahamas. There's an FTX US, which practically nobody uses. And there are all kinds of muddied uh, ways that people can access these sites. They can use VPNs, they can all of that. And uh, David, you and I had an article in August just about this. And essentially what was happening is during the crypto winter of the summer, in which I was likely very depressed, uh, you had all of these companies failing because the Bitcoin price was done. You had the uh, Anchor Protocol and this entire stablecoin that fell through, and it just caused a lot of bankruptcies, liquidations. And he went in there with his companies, both Alameda Research and FTX, and has said, okay, I'm going to put up you know $5 billion dollars. And we're going to save the industry. We're going to buy that company, liquidate that, uh, buy a BlockFi, buy Voyager, and we're going to assume all of their debts. And then once he did that, the debts were so large, and there was you know not much money in the company anyway, <laughs> that the, he was essentially borrowing money and printing up these fake tokens of the exchange. And that was what was on the books for this Alameda Research hedge fund. And in between, there's a lot of money that's being funneled into politics. He became the second biggest donor to the Democrats. 
And all of this just bringing up a house of cards, so much risk into the system. But meanwhile, he's gaining favor because he is sending a lot of money, not just to uh, political parties, but to different institutions. He's funding stuff on COVID-19, pandemic preparedness. He's sending money in advertising on there's uh, the sports stadium in Miami. Tom Brady's the official spokesman. Our boy Larry David gets caught up, unfortunately. <laughs> and all this money is kind of being floated around and whatever. And then there's a leaked report that comes out. Uh, this is in late October, very late October, uh, basically showing that in Alameda Research, um, the main sort of the main uh, commodity, the main money, the main sort of property that they have are just a bunch of tokens from this exchange. So whereas that group was supposed to be, you know, whatever, a $5 billion hedge fund, it was probably only worth about $10 million. And a lot of money was being siphoned out and basically they were taking it out, stealing it from the customers who had deposited their money and washing it around, sending it to different institutions, gaining favor, being on everybody's great list, being flown into Davos, doing events with Bill Clinton. Um, Bill Clinton, man, this guy's 0 for 25 on picking entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Theranos was a big old thing that Clinton was all about, you know, and Joe Biden as well. But this is essentially what happened. We're, we're trying to get into the details, but the worst part about it is that he was there in Washington meeting with, with these regulators, meeting with a lot of the Senate Agricultural Committee who's supposed to be writing crypto policy, a lot of the regulators and the other institutions. There's a lot of money being spread around, and in the media, the coverage has been so soft, has been so laughable, that you've had more ire against, you know, Elon Musk on a Monday than you've had against this guy who likely in the end will have stolen about six billion dollars from people. Yeah, it'll be like the greatest heist of all time. They'll make a Hollywood movie about this. There'll be a book. Oh no, no. Did you hear this? Um, that uh what's his name? Michael Lewis, the big short, has been embedded with FTX for the last six months writing a book on them. You mean Michael Burry? He's writing a book about FTX? Oh, no, no, not Burry. Lewis, oh. Well, Lewis is the guy who wrote the big show. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so he's been embedded with FTX for the last six months. Oh, <laughs> I, will, I will definitely buy that book. The theory, though, is that likely uh, Lewis was talking to Burry, and Burry was the one who leaked that report about the assets at Alameda. Man, that uh, Michael Burry true. is like just... The guy who's like almost always right. <laughs> savant, savant, yeah. Oh no, we're we're following his stock picks and uh, not doing too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what this entire thing has done is it has depressed uh, many of the cryptocurrency prices because there was a huge sell-off. Mm -hmm. There's more panics, and then a lot of institutions had money at FTX, the exchange. You had a lot of different institutions that had money there. The Ontario Teachers Union Pension no, Fund had stuff there. What a the Quebec Pension Fund oh, had God. money in Celsius, which is much the same. And and all of this stuff is, you know, there are all of these collapsing entities and all these debts that have to become, and the margin calls have come in. And you had a couple of nerd, you know, traders from MIT that set up shop in the Bahamas. And the latest thing was that, you know, you had all of this money that no one knew where it was. And then all of a sudden, the detectives who are following this stuff on the blockchain 
we're seeing that there were billions of dollars being drained from the system. Mm -hmm. And the person who apparently drained it is now like one of the largest holders of the Ethereum token. Yep. And the latest report is it might have been the Bahamas government. Like they withdrew the this account. Is, uh, Why would they do that? They f well, no, no. They forced FTX to uh, essentially get the money to them because it's the Bahamas where they're technically regulated. Oh, okay, interesting. I mean, but this is an absolute. It's an absolute failure of the normal institutions. And look, this is not what cryptocurrency is because like things like Bitcoin are fine. Decentralized protocols. If you have your own keys and you put stuff on your own wallet, you're safe. Yeah, Do yeah. You, yeah, you yeah. got your eighty-seven million. Uh, Canadian dollars there in Bitcoin, you got it safe on your wallet. Yes. You can access it anywhere with your keys. If you don't have keys, then you don't own the Bitcoin. And then you're... And that's what a lot of people were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what a lot of people were doing. They were putting it on exchanges. On exchanges. They were doing it on yield products. Um, I think the greater... This is what free markets are about, though, is that companies fail and, you know, things fall apart. But there was criminal activity here. I don't know if they'll actually be pursued, uh, but you had a failure because Fortune Magazine, Bloomberg, New York Times, they sung this guy's praises forever because he was an effective altruist, because he gave a lot of money to Democrats. And there's just a lot of tomfoolery that's not actually being covered here. It's very, very soft. Just imagine the coverage you've seen, you know, the backlash against a couple of CEOs, you know, who just didn't want to allow... I don't know, some kind of uh, George Floyd protest in their lobby. You know, there's been more vitriol posted against these people than someone who is allegedly a criminal. Yeah. And, I mean, if it's $6 billion, let's say that's the final number, it will be in the top five, like, greatest frauds of all time. He will be, it absolutely he will be Bernie Madoff-esque level of fraud. Um, and then the the number of connections, obviously, you had uh, now the head of Alameda Research, uh, or she was, she was like Sam Bankman-Fried's girlfriend, and her dad was the head of the department at MIT, where Gary Gensler was also teaching, who's now the head of the SEC. There's all kinds of stuff here. <laughs> I just, I fear that it is being put under the carpet that there's focus on other stuff. It, I, it would I'm appear, not sure if... It kind of feels like it's the Theranos model, right? The fake it till you make it and shield yourself with as many influential connections as possible to prolong the fraud. That was essentially Absolutely. the Theranos model, was they didn't have the product and they had enough influential people on the board and, and backing uh, Theranos that they went on for a long time until the Wall Street Journal basically blew them up. Um, and I think this is very much the same thing, right? You have the right connections, and you can fake it till you make it until you can't, and someone leaks something, um, but that's where well, we Well, they were, they were just running, they were running a, a crypto exchange. They were essentially running a bank, a financial institution. And here's the funny part. They were running it with none of the reserves that they claimed to have because people would deposit, you know, $100, you'd put $100 in crypto, and they would take the, that 200 and they'd go loan it out and do all the kinds of stuff and play funny money, do whatever. And in the end, all that money was gone or it was lent out. And then when people went to try to withdraw their money, it wasn't there, caused a panic. Um, meanwhile, 
If we all went to our banks tomorrow and tried to withdraw our cash... Same thing would happen. (laughs) (laughs) It would be much worse. And, you know, we have this moral hazard of, you know, deposit insurance, you know, which depends on the certain level. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the U.S., it's up to 250K, but... You know, there's there's a lot of contagion in this system, and oddly enough, Bitcoin is a way to opt out of it. Uh, but <laughs> the, the political stuff is going to be a big mess, and I, I will state, David, we were on the record as Consumer Choice Center back in September uh, to uncover this. We'll put the, some of the links in the show notes, and I think we even mentioned it uh, a couple programs ago. I have to go back and look at the number, maybe episode 140, 139. Uh, we kind of mentioned this rather briefly. Uh, but that was before the the blow up and before it became a household name and before, you know, taxi drivers everywhere were, were saying, oh, did you hear about the FTX? So terrible stuff, bad stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll have more on our side uh, just researching this and hopefully making connections with lawmakers to make the consumer case, not the industry case for cryptocurrency regulations. Um, so, yeah, David, that uh, kind of does it for, for our two segments here. I think you got an interview mm-hmm. uh, that you got batted up here. Tell us more about that. Yeah, super nerdy topic, looking at risk and hazard assessments uh, with Michael Durson, president and director of science with Terra, which is toxicology, toxicology excellence for risk assessment. Um, so, yes, if, you, if you're into the, into the weeds on, on that type of stuff like I am, um, a great interview, great guest. And, uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. All right. Lovely. We'll do that. David, I'm, I'm off to head off uh, to the airport. Uh, oddly enough, they've made the laws and regulations so bad in New York, it's about half the price to take a yellow cab now. So I won't be in an Uber or Lyft. I'll be taking a normal old cab to the airport. Well, enjoy. So it goes. Enjoy. Thank you. All right. Until next week. And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I have the pleasure of chatting with our next guest. His name is Michael Durson. He is the President and Director of Science with Terra, Toxicology Excellence for Risk Assessment. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for the invite. So, um, Terra, uh, give our listeners... um, a run-through of the organization, its purpose, uh, and then maybe we can chat about some of the projects and and issue areas that you guys uh, work on. Yeah, certainly. So Terra is an independent, science-neutral nonprofit. You know, we're an environmental science non-government organization or NGO. And we do work for both industry and government. About two-thirds of our work is government. And importantly, we build collaborations between parties. So that's government, industry, and other NGOs. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this since 1995 and have a pretty good track record of success with uh, various uh, government groups and also industry groups. And and so when you, I mean, when you talk about the work that you guys do uh, in establishing um, some of those risk uh, modules or however however you describe them, what are some of the key issue areas that you're tasked with, wh- whether that be public partnership or private? Yeah, so our work divides into three main areas. The first is to doing the assessment science. So we will be asked to look at a particular chemistry, and we have we've looked at dozens of them. In fact, we've looked at maybe even scores or maybe even a hundred. And we we analyze the data. We look at the the hazard associated with the with particular chemical. We look at the mm-hmm. dose response. You know, 
what level does the chemical cause the toxicity? Then we look at the exposures. Are people exposed? If there's mm-hmm. no exposure, there's no risk. Uh, and then we write a report. So that's about one third of our work. The other third of our work is we do independent peer review of other people's work. So uh, there's often a need. Government would often often like to look at an industry position, but they want to see some independent peer review. We provide that that services independent peer review. And then the third thing we do is we build uh, databases and give this information away freely because uh, we're an independent nonprofit, but tax exempt. And part of that, part of that uh, being tax exempt is uh, whatever work we do, we need to get it to the public somehow. Uh, and that's what we, that's about a third of our work is either uh, doing these public databases or we have uh, training uh, groups you know, we train scientists in this area of science, or we talk to individuals and, and the members of the public, you know, about their questions about chemical and risk and, mm-hmm. and things like this. That's about a third of our work as well. One of one of my observations uh, you mentioned very importantly, and this is something that I have written about, and it's kind of what intrigued me in regards to the work that you guys do. You've men- you mentioned hazard exposure and risk. Uh, very often I find, um, let's say in the media, you will see a headline that says Cheerios contains cancer-causing glyphosate, um, which really ignores the exposure and risk side. Do you see that as a growing problem, whether it be media or policymaking, where um, there's a hazard-based approach and maybe we, maybe as a, from a policy perspective, there's a bit of an overreaction? Yeah, there there really is a. I think there's a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you if you pursue a hazard based policy approach only, uh, you're you're just missing uh, part of the equation, an important part of the equation. Uh, you could say, well, hazard based policy. Uh, look at cars. Are there a hazard with driving cars? Well, sure there are. Right. And if you drive cars that, you know, on our U.S. highways at 100 miles an hour, the risks of an accident go up dramatically. If you drive at five miles an hour, there's hardly any risk at all. So there really is a dramatic difference in the intensity of the particular chemical exposure. I'd like to look at, at toxicology is very simple. It's just three tweets. The first tweet is we're exposed to thousands of chemicals every day. A cup of coffee is probably, I know, 1,500 chemicals, right? and potatoes have just as many. So the point is we're exposed to tens of thousands of chemicals every day. That's just normal part of life, tweet one. Tweet two is all chemicals are toxic at some dose. And uh, you know, water, you can drink too much water and kill yourself, people have done it. And the tweet three is all chemicals have a safe or virtually safe dose. There is a, a level below which your body doesn't care anymore. And in, mm-hmm. in the glyphosate example that you use on Cheerios, the levels of glyphosate are minuscule. Your body doesn't have any problem dealing with those minuscule levels of glyphosate. And of course, people argue whether it's a carcinogen or not. Most people, most groups, most government groups in the world, in fact, I think nearly every government group in the world that I've looked mm-hmm. at thinks glyphosate does not cause cancer. There's only one group in in uh, France, it, it claims it causes cancer, and that's based on hazard only. And so it's really a, a pretty weak argument for that particular chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that brings me to another kind of hot topic. We, I mean, we see this with talc and glyphosate and 
that one of the conversations of the day is PFAS, um, the ongoing debate of of what are I mean, obviously trying to eliminate it from water sources, but um, to what extent folks are um, in danger because of certain exposures. There's egregious cases like we saw, I believe it was in West Virginia um, with DuPont, and, and that turned into a movie, and that really got a lot of people focused on, on that question. Um, is that an issue area you as an organization are looking at? Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We're we've uh, studied the glyphosate issue for ever since two thousand and two, I believe. We were part of the West Virginia uh, issue back in two thousand and two. So we were working for the state of West Virginia. Came up uh-huh. with a safe dose that was, uh, I think, one hundred and fifty parts per billion in water, or maybe depending on the equation, it was thirty parts per billion in water. Yep. Uh, using the available science we had at the time. We've learned a lot of information since that time, and that information has allowed us allowed us collectively to lower the safe dose. Now, different people have different ideas of how much lower it should be. The Australians are about a half a part per billion, so they've gone down considerably from 150 parts per billion or, or 30, depending on the equation you use, to about a half a part per billion. Uh, U.S. EPA recently, uh, well, the, the the number they have in the books is 0.07 parts per billion, so it's even lower than the Australians. And a recent number they come out with is is extraordinarily much lower. So there's a disagreement, you know, worldwide on what the safe dose of PFOA, perfluorooctanoate, yeah. is the chemical name. That's sort of the poster child for all these PFAS chemicals. And, you know, we're part of an international collaboration to try to resolve that. And it's they're unfunded collaborations, so anybody can join. Mm-hmm. And we're just doing the best we can with the, with the new science that we have, which is uh, considerable. We have some really good science here that we might be able to resolve some of these these differences. And and for for the layman, why would it be important to resolve these differences? Well, the differences are, are extraordinary. I mean, the... Usually when people, when groups, scientific groups investigate the safe level of a chemical, the safe dose of a chemical, remember now, all chemicals have a safe dose or virtually safe dose. So when we do that, if we come within about two or three fold of each other, that's, that's pretty good. And it's sort of like, you know, uh, I don't know, we have different analogies for this, but the science groups, the uncertainties are large enough that when you, you do these assessments, if you come up with a number that's a safe dose of three and some other group comes up with a safe dose of one, uh, it's about the same number. Even though three is different than one, the underlying biology and the, and the way people judge things are sufficiently complex that a threefold difference doesn't mean too much. Uh, but the differences that we're seeing now in the safe dose assessment for PFOA, perfluorooctanoate, is over 100,000-fold. Mm-hmm. Well, that's extraordinary. I've I've been doing this for 40 years. I've never seen anything even close to that. And usually when you see numbers so that are dramatically different, you know, maybe like 30-fold different or you know, 10-fold different, 100 fold different, they're they're because the assessment, the date of the assessment of the of the older one is is 10 years back, and there's all this new science that's come forward and it's either raised or lowered the safe dose. Well, in this case, these are these are contemporary numbers. I mean, the Australians have a number that's, you know, at uh, point, I think it's point uh, 
0.5 parts per billion. And the, the U.S. government is much, much lower, 100,000 fold lower. Mm-hmm. And these are these are contemporary. They're not really that different in time. So there's a big difference in the science here that needs to be resolved. And until we resolve this science, it's it's premature to do policy decisions. It's okay to be concerned, but mm-hmm. the concern should generate scientific research to resolve these differences and not into the, uh, you know, we have different levels all across our own U.S. And I know the Canadians, for instance, have a very different number than the U.S. EPA. Mm-hmm. And so, and the Canadians, I've worked with the Canadian scientists, they've got some really good people there. And so, you know, we need the Canadian scientists and the EPA and maybe the Australians to to kind of sit in a room together and work this out. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's almost, it, it almost seems like a, it'd be a good opportunity for the, the minds who are focused on this to come together and kind of show your work um, and say, okay, how do, how do we get here? Why is there such a huge disparity um, because obviously if that influences policy making, you could completely overreact on the flip side, you could completely underreact, um, depending on what is accurate and, and what isn't, um, be, we, I mean, we talk, we talk glyphosate and PFAS, what other issue areas or hot topics have you guys dove into, um, and, and tried to tackle in terms of creating that consensus? Well, I mean, one thing is education. So one of our ideas is to try to train people in doing assessment science. And we just got done with six uh, training courses uh, from the summer on, two of them in uh, India, one in Australia, one in Canada. We just we just did one last month in Canada and we just had a, a training session here in the U.S., um, and so that's part of it. I mean, we train scientists to, to make better judgments, to learn how to do judgments. So that's part of it. The other thing is we're trying to work collaboratively with different groups, uh, industry and government and NGOs, to try to come to a consensus on individual chemical assessments. So, I mean, chromium-6, uh, glyphosate, PFOA, uh, perchlorate, the list of hot topics goes on and on. And we have found that it's difficult for any one scientist, certainly one scientist, and even any one group to wrap their minds around the complexities of some of these assessments so that you you really need to work in a collaborative fashion. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree on every last point because you know there are legitimate scientific disagreements. But a disagreement of 100,000-fold is not acceptable scientifically. It's just not. And yeah. so we need to we need to recognize that difference, and we need to bring people together to work on that difference. And one of our international collaborations, actually, we're just it's just now started. It's still open. People people will be able to participate. We've invited different governments, the Australians, uh, the Canadians the US government agencies. We've invited all these people to participate and we're getting some, you know, some people that are participating. Um, and we're gonna try to resolve at least this uh, difference in the PFOA safe dose. So we, in fact, we just had the World Health Organization weigh in on this and they have a difference as well. So we have all sorts of uh, opportunities here to work collaboratively and that's what we really need to do. 
Well, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, We have about a minute left. Where can people learn more about yourself and the organization and the work that you guys are doing? Well, again, we're a public organization. So if you go to www.terra.org, you you can go to our website and you can leave a note or you you can peruse a website and 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 send us questions. We have a blog there. The blog is really more public. There are stories that are more geared to short stories are more geared to public understanding of what's going mm-hmm. on with some of these chemistries. So that's something to be checked out. And of course, we always are open to uh, collaborative efforts. So if other folks have questions or they want to draw a collaboration together, we'd be happy to do that. Well, fantastic. Uh, thank you, Michael, again for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, you have a wonderful day and it's, uh, you're welcome for the, it's, it, you're welcome for, for me uh, giving you this information, but we really thank you for the opportunity to help.